the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated please. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Everybody, how is it going? Welcome. This is episode number 92 of The Right Take. We are so excited to be back. It was a bit of a hiatus. So sorry, guys. A nearly two-week hiatus there. I, of course, am Eric Lendrum here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff. And we've got a lot to talk about on this episode, believe me. Uh, I'm going to come right out and say I. one big reason why the uh, this episode was a little delayed. Uh, one, I was very, very busy uh, with my regular job. Uh, but two... I don't know about you, Jacob, for the last two weeks now, the news cycle primarily has been dominated by one stupid thing. Balloons! Balloons. It's nothing but these stupid... UFOs. 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 I'm sorry. Yes, yes. I got to refer to them by the correct pronouns. Yeah, they're UFOs, technically. They identify as UFOs. But yeah, Chinese balloons, now like multiple UFOs. Are the aliens really finally trying to make contact with us and we just keep shooting them down because we're paranoid of China? Who knows what's going on? But it's, it's nothing but these balloons. That's all you're seeing on the news. That's all you're hearing about everywhere. It was kind of funny at first for a while, but now I'm just sick of it. 
And for the longest time, there was just nothing else going on in the news. But now, finally, there is more to talk about. There is more to laugh at. And there are more serious discussions to be had that don't involve these, you know, these uh, flotation devices of suspicious unknown origin that keep uh, just entering our airspace so mysteriously. Uh, So first off, my forte, as always, as you guys know, is elections. I love elections. They are my blood sports. I know I'm that much of a nerd. And... The, the big one is coming up, guys. I mean, yeah, we've got a little uh, off-year cycle with, with 2023, of course. Uh, the biggest races there being the governor's races in Kentucky and Louisiana. But, of course, the presidential race is the one that everyone really wants to talk about. And it has officially begun in earnest. We have the first official challenger to President Donald J. Trump, the undisputed frontrunner for the Republican nomination. And it is, of course, as I like to call her, the neocon in heels. I know you're going to love this, Jacob. Here's just a snippet from Nimrata, excuse me, Nikki Haley's announcement video. We must turn in that direction again. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Okay. I mean, I guess (sighs) if she's comparing herself to Joe, she could consider herself a new generation. Exactly. But I got to agree with Don Lemon on this, that uh, she's a little (laughs) bit over the hill to be considering her, at least to be considering herself a new part of the new generation. Like you got to be 35 to run for president. She's 50. Exactly. Yes, that's the thing. Uh, I'm going to come back to that a bit. But yeah, she's 51. So that's that that ties into them. How it makes no sense. The comments she makes later on in her presidential announcement. I'm struggling to speak. I am stammering because I am just so flabbergasted by so much that was said there. First off, I got to drill down this one. The one thing that really annoys me, the one thing that gets my goat from all that, Jacob, she repeats the same garbage we've heard from Ben Shapiro and others. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Number one. We have an electoral college for a reason, folks. We're not a direct democracy. Thank God. If we were, this country would have been down the drain a long time ago, or at least more so than it currently is. We have the electoral college for a reason. The popular vote does not matter. And as long as California exists as it does right now in this current state, we're never going to win the popular vote again. That's just a fact. California is going to give a Democratic presidential candidate five million more votes than the Republican just like that in an instant for free no strings attached whatsoever as far as democrats are concerned so it doesn't matter number one number two of those eight presidential elections they always say seven of the last eight seven of the last eight from uh bush senior's loss in 1992 up until 2021 do you know what the one exception is jacob the one republican who won the popular vote during that eight election cycle uh streak well bush's re-election 04 bush jr in 2004 against john Kerry. so first off in order to have that happen again by my Haley's metrics here, we got to hope the Democrats nominate someone as brain dead as John Kerry, which is never going to happen again. Two, what does that mean? Bush was the winner of the popular vote. So does that mean we need to go back to Bush? We need to go back, not, not just well, any that's Bush. What that, that's what her argument is. That's, and that's basically she is a Bush Republican, and that's what she's going to run on. She's going to argue that, well, look, Bush won the popular vote. You need to elect someone who thinks like Bush, who has heels, and I'll be able to do it. 
Exactly. And that's not, you know, the 2000 era Bush, who was still kind of a a, a blank slate politically and culturally, other than, of course, being the son of a former president. This is 2004 George Bush, the neocon, the one who had already invaded half the Middle East by that point. That's the president we should hope to emulate, which, by the way, as I love pointing out electoral math here, Bush ultimately managed to win that election in 2004 by winning literally every single swing state in the country, minus New Hampshire. He won Florida, Texas, or excuse me, Florida, Ohio, Iowa. He won Colorado, New Mexico, uh, North Carolina, every swing state. And he only got like, what, 286 electoral votes, I believe, versus Trump, who lost a lot of those. He lost Colorado, New Mexico, Virginia. But because he flipped the Rust Belt, he got more electoral votes than Bush Jr. ever did. All right. So... You're arguing that we should return to a campaign strategy that basically says we need to fight for the littlest electoral scraps, like five electoral vote New Mexico, instead of continuing to pursue the Rust Belt where the real money is, electorally speaking. So it's just a nonsensical statement. It's another talking point that means nothing. And you'll quickly find this is what I was going to get back to with the age thing. Nikki Haley's campaign very much consists of the most boring, basic, focus group tested planned out Carl Rove talking points you have ever mm-hmm. heard from a Republican candidate. Um, and this was evident in her first rally. We don't have any clips from that, but I, I was watching it live on Fox News, so I'll just recite some of the lines for you. It was in Charleston, of course, her home state. Why not? By the way, Jacob, I don't know if you noticed this. Fox News was carrying her first presidential rally completely live and uninterrupted. When was the last time? No, I did not know that. They that did. That was interesting. Sounds familiar. When was the last time they did that for President Trump, by the way? When was the last time Fox carried one of his rallies? Well, they used to all the time back in 2016. I don't yes. believe that they did. They did like one out of three in 2018. and 2020, they had pretty much written him off. Exactly. They especially stopped after 2020. Uh, but certainly, I mean, other than, uh, nowadays, it's Newsmax and RSBN, Right Side Broadcasting Network. Those are the only two that still carry Trump's speeches. And, of course, his Rumble channel, President Trump's Rumble channel. But, yeah, Fox stopped giving Trump coverage and giving him a platform a long time ago, obviously, with the shift uh, by Rupert Murdoch from the very top, you know, especially after the midterms when DeSantis won re-election. That was the flip. That was the coin flip. Now, Fox, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, they are all the enemy. They are against Trump. And they are all for whoever the establishment is. They promoted Santos, and now they're promoting Nikki Haley. So they carried her first uh, presidential campaign rally. And among other things, during that rally, she repeated that popular vote line. Last seven of the last eight elections, she described at one point, she said, quote, we can't bring America into the 21st century if we keep trusting politicians from the 20th century, end quote. So wait a minute, Nick, as you point out, Jacob, she's 51 years old. makes no sense. Exactly. She's 51 years old. She Granted, she started serving the public life in, I think, the mid-2000s, if that's what she's going for. But again, she herself is old. She's technically a member of Gen X. She, You, you can't have – that makes no sense because if you want to talk about bringing America to the 21st century, which is another garbage talking point, by the way. Given where we are right now in this 21st century we have now, Jacob, 23 years in, between all the endless wars – and now trannies running around trying to groom children and black nationalists burning down half the country. If this is the 21st century, I'd rather go back to the 20th century. I don't know about you, Jacob, uh, but, but I think most of us agree at this point. Take us back to the 50s, please. I'll even take the 90s back at this point, Bill Clinton and all. But again, to bring America in the 21st century, you're basically saying, oh, someone would have to run for president who's born in the 21st century. So someone who's 23 or younger, which constitutionally, you can't run for president. You cannot run for president until you're 35 years old or older by the constitutional requirements. So it makes no sense whatsoever. That's a nonsensical talking point. 
This line was my favorite slash not non-favorite, anti-favorite line from the speech. Jacob, you'll love this one. Nikki Haley described herself as, quote, a brown girl growing up in a black and white world, end quote. She started doing this, I noticed, right after the Black Lives Matter movement took over, or I should say was invited into corporate America after the George Floyd death. Yes. She started describing herself as a brown girl in a black and white world. She never described herself. I never heard her describe herself as that before that. And what this is, is this is the rich, wealthy, these are the wealthy Republicans, which she is an example of, simply trying to mold themselves into the culture. They have no interest in shaping culture. They have no interest in driving culture. They simply want to hold on to their wealth, and they will do whatever the left wants them to do, but they'll try to put a conservative spin on it. And that's, you know, that, that rather than say, no, we shouldn't categorize people by the color of their skin, it's, okay, no, I'm going to embrace that as a, as a brown girl. And by the way, she is incorrect. She did not grow up as a brown girl in a black and white South Carolina. She grew up as a white girl in a black and white South Carolina. She would have never been considered quote unquote brown. There's no such thing as brown. That is not even, that is a straight out of academia. That is not yes. a colloquial terminology to refer to anybody. You're either in America, you're either black or white. And she grew up as a white girl in a black and white South Carolina. Yeah. Brown has kind of come to be like a all encompassing for like, generally it's perceived as referring to hispanics but you could also technically refer to arabs you could refer to indians with brown it's it's such a nonsensical term that a friend of mine pointed out black and brown being used by the left is their attempt at lumping black americans in with all other minorities again like the the progress flag with the brown and black stripes mm -hmm. added in on the top of the tranny colors and everything as if to say oh all minorities are in this together even though i mean again you take one look at like the la riots for example and, uh, and other instances where most minorities d don't get along with each other in these urban settings especially so i'm sure plenty of certainly again the blm movement is not about to turn around and you know become friendly with the la raza movement you know it's it's not gonna happen so Again, like you said, they're trying to take the left's ideas, you know, culturally and ethnically, and put a conservative spin on it. And that is probably explains perfectly why her campaign website, as of the time of this recording, folks, does not have an actual platform of any kind. She doesn't list any policy stances, but it's okay. God, this is the, the grift you should expect. It does have a merch store, of course, featuring shirts and mugs bearing, I guess, the unofficial slogan of her campaign, which is, quote, Sometimes it takes a woman, end quote. I mean, <laughs> oh, I, wow. I, you can't make this oh, up. That's worse than anything Hillary Clinton ever came up with. <laughs> that's more cringe than what Hillary did. Hillary very much presented herself as a historic candidate. Like, I am going to be the first woman. Nikki Haley is more like, I'm a woman, teehee. Like, she doesn't brace the severity of it, like, as Hillary Clinton did, which made it all the more hilarious well, when what, Hillary this Clinton lost. This is what lost. rich conservatives will do. This is what rich country club conservatives will do. They'll try to embrace the movements of the left, whether it's anti-racism or feminism, but they don't want to go too far because they understand that they'll alienate certain conservatives who aren't comfortable with that. So they'll try to embrace it just enough to kind of win over the people who are, but also want to keep their taxes low, but don't want to go too far. And this is, this Nikki Haley is the face of country club republicanism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just as a reminder, because I think we can agree, Jacob, she's not going to win the nomination. She's not going to be president. No. Best case scenario, as no. some have speculated, she is just running for a cabinet position or maybe VP. So she could 
that way end up in a second Trump administration? Uh, hopefully not, but we'll see. Again, thankfully, the only position Trump ever gave her was ambassador to the United Nations, which uh, I remember reading. I think it was a, a Tom Clancy novel, or I could be wrong, uh, some political novel that described ambassadorships in general as what they would call an F.O. position, which stands for F off, you know, an F off position that a president gives to someone they don't like. So, hey, go off to Rome and be my ambassador to Vatican so I don't have to deal with you in this country, you know, for the remainder of my term, something like that. Kind of so, like Trump did the Newt Gingrich, huh? Uh, yeah, but at least, at least he likes Gingrich. At least he <laughs> literally I, I was sitting not, to Rome. No, I was I was not referencing Gingrich there, folks. That I disavow. I was not insulting Gingrich. That was just a random example that popped in my head because we like Gingrich generally speaking compared to someone like Haley. I mean, I'll take Gingrich any day in the administration over Haley. I'd rather him be VP or chief of staff before I would ever let Haley be anywhere near the top of the executive branch. Um, but but nevertheless. We are going to bring the hammer down on her. We are going to list all the reasons why you should despise her as if they weren't obvious enough already. And this requires going back into her history uh, to 2015 and 2016. This is the reason for which I will always hate Nikki Haley. And this is why literally if she somehow by an unholy miracle became the nominee, I would just not I would not vote for her. I would sit out that election in 2016. She explicitly by name blamed then candidate Donald Trump for the Charleston church shooting in 2015, where an actual white supremacist, like a real neo-Nazi, shot up a black church. Um, she blamed specifically Trump's, quote, rhetoric. And speaking of Charleston, it was shortly after the shooting in 2015 when Nikki Haley, this is the thing people need to remember. We saw it, especially in the aftermath of Charlottesville. A lot of people said Charlottesville and the right-wing peaceful protest there that was attacked by Antifa rioters. People say that that was the catalyst of the anti-Confederate movement. You know, statues being torn down, the Confederate flags being taken down. That, that definitely was a big powder keg, but that was not the spark. The spark, the beginning of the anti-Confederate movement was Nikki Haley, who after the Charleston church shooting signed a bill into law ordering the South Carolina state capitol to take down the Confederate flag and order the banning of Confederate imagery on state uh, government grounds. So kind of like people kind of forget this too, how sometimes the most horrible scourges culturally in our society today, the most insidious campaigns by the left are actually started by cucked conservatives like Nikki Haley. Kind of like, for example... The whole Russian collusion hoax was not started by the left. It was not started by Hillary Clinton's campaign. It was started by a supposedly conservative publication called the Washington Free Beacon on behalf, which supported Ted Cruz in the 2016 primaries. They first kind of concocted this Trump is secretly a Russian asset. He talks to Vladimir Putin, all that stuff. And that eventually gained enough traction. It was then picked up by the Hillary campaign. And the rest, we all know the rest from there. The rest is history. But you got to remember these people, these so-called conservatives who start these movements, these countercultural zeitgeists that ultimately end up being very harmful to our country and basically threaten to rip our country apart at the seams. These people absolutely, absolutely should not be trusted anywhere near public office whatsoever. And on top of all of that, if that's a little too scholarly, if that's too ancient history, that's too in-depth. Then here's another very simple reason why we should oppose Nikki Haley. And it comes in the form of another video cut. This is from, I think, about two years ago, maybe a year ago. Uh, very recent history, folks. This is after she had served in the Trump administration. He still has a lot of popularity. If he runs again in 2024, will you support him? Yes. If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run as President Trump. Oh, what happened there, Nikki Haley? I, I said this to one of my coworkers the other day. Could you imagine for just a second, Jacob, how nice it would be if in the United States of America, 
it was a crime for a politician to lie in an interview the same way it's a crime to lie before Congress. And that's why I love this. Uh, before we move on here, just two more quick things. President Trump addressed Nikki Haley's entrance into the campaign in the most Chad way possible, the most Donald Trump way imaginable. Quote, I'm glad she's running. I want her to follow her heart, even though she made a commitment that she would never run against who she called the greatest president of her lifetime. <laughs> she should do what she wants to do and not be bound by the fact that she said she would never do it. The more, the merrier, end quote. This is a new style that some of my friends, I have some friends, regretfully, who are DeSantis shills at this point, DeSimps, as I like to call them, and they freak out. Uh, a little while ago, Trump made a post on True Social after the State of the Union where he said something roughly along the lines of, Biden worked very hard tonight. It's not something that comes to him naturally. It never has been and never will be, but he worked hard tonight. And these DeSantis freaks were freaking out like, oh my God, Trump's complimenting Biden. What is he doing? And I'm like, do you not understand Trump's humor? Number one, his number one favorite method of going after his opponents is outright roasting. You know, low energy Jeb, little Marco, calling Ted Cruz a Zodiac killer, stuff like that. That's his number one method. Number two is the backhanded compliment, like that with Joe Biden and like this with Nikki Haley. She should follow her heart even though she promised she wouldn't do that. You know, she shouldn't bound by what she promised you all she wouldn't do. Like, it's backhanded compliments, and I love it. That is just so savage. It's so great. And they're going to have a lot of fun on that debate stage. He's just going to effortlessly wipe her off without uh, a second thought. And again, she's probably, she's polling like the low single digits. She's not going to be the nominee. But like Trump said, the more, the merrier. Speaking of which, uh, there there are others. There are other rumblings of people who are talking about running. Of course, uh, also from South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott has formed an exploratory committee. That'll be interesting. And let's not forget, this one kind of flew under the radar a bit. John Bolton, one of Nikki Haley's predecessors as ambassador to the United Nations, he announced his plans to run for president against Trump in 2024. In an interview on a British news channel, by the way, not even an American one, uh, but very recently he was on Meet the Press to respond to Nikki Haley's announcement and uh, get ready for this episode of Pot, Meat, Kettle. I think uh, Nikki's really running for vice president. That's my sense. I think she has a problem because she first said she wouldn't run if President Trump ran. Uh, and her justification for changing was that a lot of things have changed, which I don't think is very convincing. So you think she has a credibility problem going into this race? I think Trump will have a lot of fun with her. I quoted uh, uh, Mike Pompeo in my book, something he said about Nikki Haley. He said she's light as a feather. And the fact he has to quote Mike Pompeo to gang up on Nikki Haley is like, oh, she's light as a feather. Like all these neocons already ready to tear each other's throats out before the primaries have even started. I love yeah, it. A lot of people are throwing Mike Pompeo's name out there as a potential 2024 yes. candidate, but he's just Pompeo. You have to be a certain, you have to have a certain look. And Pompeo, I believe, has just eaten a few too many cheeseburgers to have that look to make him look presidential. <laughs> the Trump can get away with it because he's got the personality, the bombastic personality that people are drawn to. Mike Pompeo doesn't have that, so he can't compensate. Exactly, yeah. Although he has lost a considerable amount of weight if you see him on Fox News. These days, his face does look very, like, gone and narrow. Like Probably the, a lot less stress. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is, uh, as a friend of mine suggested, that's a man losing weight because he's getting ready to run for president. So we'll see. In my betting pool, I absolutely think Pompeo is going to run for president 100%. Take that to the bank. Uh, Tim Scott basically announced he's running. Um, Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, is probably going to run as well. 
Um, I'm actually of the hot take. We can get into this in a later episode, but I'm of the hot take that DeSantis will not run for president. Uh, that's just me. We'll have to wait and see what happens. So one of the issues that has been coming up since Biden became president is the question of who is actually president, like who is actually pulling the strings behind the scene, because it's very obvious that Biden is not all there, that he's just a face to try to unite the Democratic coalition, that he's not actually calling the shots. And Roger Kimball wrote a fantastic article in American Greatness, and uh, we'll link to that in the description. And he basically makes the argument that it's more of like a government uh, by committee. Like it's not one or, or two people who are behind the scenes running the show. It's basically, you know, multiple people who have the same agenda and the same ideology. They are guiding the administration. Of course, Biden is the face of that administration. I would argue that of all the cabinet members, the most powerful is Antony Blinken. He is the most powerful cabinet member, the most powerful member of the administration, the most influential. He's been with Biden, been close friends with Biden all the way for years, going back to the Obama administration. He was the undersecretary of state under Obama. He grew up in a diplomatic family. I think it's his, uh, his uncle, his grandfather, um, and uh, his parents, I believe, were all diplomats. So he grew up as in uh, basically an international baby. And so he is like an international rather than a military brat, a diplomatic brat. So his his loyalty is more or less to the ideal of America's foreign policy since World War II rather than to the idea of the nation state. And uh, we're going to get into that in a little bit with a few clips from speeches that he's given. But the thing with Tony Blinken is, uh, you know, used to before the vice president was the next in line to be president, the secretary of state was the one who was basically the presumed nominee for the president's party after the president served two terms. This was especially true during the 1800s. And eventually the VP, it became a more powerful position. I don't believe that Tony Blinken has presidential aspirations. I think he is uh, very comfortable simply guiding America's foreign policy and even domestic policy to some extent behind the scenes. But in order to understand why the United States has essentially declared a proxy war on Russia, and why Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party, were so gung-ho about getting involved in Syria during the 2016 election. If you remember, that's why a lot of moderates voted for Trump, because they genuinely believed that Hillary would get us into a hot war with Russia over issues that did not concern the average American citizen. Well, here we are. we got another uh, Democratic administration, and we are essentially in a proxy war with Russia over a country and issues that don't concern the average American citizen. I mean, unless you were born in Ukraine and you immigrated to the United States, it, it doesn't, the average American doesn't really care about this, this stuff that much. But to understand why we're involved, it's important to understand Blinken's understanding of America's role in the war in the world and America's military. So he gave it an interview with NPR recently, and um, I covered this. Um, by the way, just a little footnote. I've recently started writing for Valiant News, uh, so um, yes. if you want to check out my work over there, uh, this is actually from an article that I wrote for Valiant this past week. So uh, um, I'll go ahead and link that into the description as well. Uh, a little shameless self-plug there. But anyway, uh, so if you look at this interview that he gave with NPR News, he was asked about Russia's war in Ukraine. And he didn't indicate that uh, he it says that Blinken, quote, Blinken didn't indicate Russia's war in Ukraine was nearing a resolution as it approaches the one year mark. He said in order to achieve lasting peace in the region, Russian President Vladimir Putin must first give up on his notion that Ukraine is not its own country. And of course, I mean, not to get in the weeds, but Russia, Putin has never claimed that he wants to take over all of Ukraine. He simply wants to take over the eastern third of Ukraine. 
Uh, Blinken said, quote, if we ratify the seizure of land by another country and say, that's okay, you can go in and take it by force and keep it, that will open a Pandora's box around the world for would-be aggressors that will say, well, we'll do the same thing and get away with it. And notice he says, if we ratify the seizure of, of land by another country, as if the United States is already a hot participant in this war. Technically, it's up to Ukraine if they want to ratify the seizure of their own land, if they want to come to a peace accord with Russia. It's not up to us since we actually haven't officially declared war on Russia. He wrote, he said, quote, I think here's the challenge. No one wants peace more and more quickly than the Ukrainian people because they're the ones who are suffering from the, uh, this aggression. But it also has to be a just peace and a durable peace. It has to be a peace that reflects the principles of the United Nations Charter that preserve Ukraine's territorial integrity. So he's essentially giving stipulations for where and when and how Ukraine is allowed to sue for peace. You know, Ukraine, he admits, he recognizes that Ukraine is bearing the brunt of this uh, this military engagement. They're losing tens of thousands of people. They've lost hundreds of billions of dollars. They're completely reliant on Western governments, not only for weapons, but also for the, uh, the future survival of their country. But he's basically saying, you know, I understand how they might want peace, but it has to be a just peace. It has to be a durable peace, and it has to be a peace that preserves Ukraine's territorial integrity. In other words, Russia must give back Crimea. Russia must give back all of the Donbass, and they must completely abandon the territory that they've taken. So what Blinken is saying that is we cannot have peace in Ukraine until Ukraine achieves total victory. And again, he uses we as if the United States is a direct participant in this war. In a speech at George Washington University, Blinken defined, you know, he always uses the term rules-based order. This is, if you listen to any of his speeches, he always talks about how Putin and Russia have been violating the rules-based order as if this was some kind of order that Russia sat down and signed, uh, you know, agreed to, and now they're breaking the order they assigned, they, they agreed to. But he said uh, at George Washington University, Blinken defined the rules-based order. He said, quote, the system of laws, agreements, principles, and institutions that the world came together to build after two world wars to manage relations between states, to prevent conflict, to uphold the rights of all people. So this is what he believes that the war in Ukraine is about, is maintaining that rules-based order. He also has a vastly different understanding of NATO compared to most Americans and the rest of the world. Most Americans who think about NATO, they understand that NATO was an alliance created by the United States and Northern European countries. That's why it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to combat Soviet influence and the allies of Eastern Europe. Back in the 1940s and 50s, you had the Warsaw Pact and NATO that came into existence as opposing military blocs. Once the Warsaw Pact dissolved, NATO was the sole reigning leader of world alliances, of global military alliances, and it exists to protect its members. At least that's the way most Americans would understand its purpose for existence, to protect all of the members. That's not how Antony Blinken sees it. He sees it as pretty much an arm of the United Nations. He sees it as the military arm of the United Nations to enforce the UN Charter. So when the UN Charter was created, there was no UN. There was a UN peacekeeping force, but of course, it, that's always been a joke. Anytime the UN peacekeeping force goes in, you might have a few hundred Nigerians, a few hundred Egyptians, a few hundred Israelis, a few hundred Americans thrown together in a little piecemeal force that really don't have any teeth. They, so th this is why the UN peacekeeping forces have always been kind of a joke. Uh, Blinken wants the NATO forces to be the teeth of the United Nations. Now, What's interesting in this speech, and we're going to play a clip of it here, uh, his speech at George Washington University, he was very careful not to uh, tie the rules-based international order in with Western values or Western civilization, which is – it's interesting because in Europe, 
they always tie in opposition to Russia with defense of Western civilization. They tie it in with defense of Western values and they tie in, you know, equality, diversity, all these things that American liberals like to tout. Western Europeans tie all of that in with Western civilization. Blinken is very careful not even to do that. So he's not even saying, he's not even telling Americans who love Western civilization that these values are our shared Western values. Its founding documents include the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which enshrine concepts like self-determination, sovereignty, the peaceful settlement of disputes. These are not Western constructs. They are reflections of the world's shared aspirations. In the decades since, despite daunting challenges and despite the gap between our ideals and some of the results we've achieved, the countries of the world have avoided another world war, an armed conflict between nuclear powers. We built a global economy that lifted billions of people out of poverty. We've advanced human rights as never before. Now, as we look to the future, we want not just to sustain the international order that made so much of that progress possible, but to modernize it, to make sure that it represents the interests, the values, the hopes of all nations, big and small, from every region. And furthermore, that it can meet the challenges that we face now and will face in the future, many of which are beyond what the world could have imagined seven decades ago. But that outcome is not guaranteed, because the foundations of the international order are under serious and sustained challenge. Russian President Vladimir Putin poses a clear and present threat. So in his worldview, he's not defending a government that started in 1776, and he's not interested in lifting millions of Americans out of poverty or building a strong American economy. He represents a system and a government that was founded in 1945. And that's why everything he talks about revolves around the past seven decades. He's interested in building a global economy. He wants to see billions, not millions of Americans, but billions of people worldwide in every nation lifted out of poverty. And this is these are the ramblings of someone who is not an American. This is someone who is literally does not have loyalty to the United States. They instead have loyalty to an ideal. In there, in his mind, this person's mind, he is representing an ideal, and the United States is simply a weapon to be used in the furtherance of that ideal. Now, the Council on Foreign Relations is basically a who's who of foreign policy elites in Washington D.C. And this was a speech that uh, that Blinken gave to CFR back in 2016, back in early 2016, when he was still serving in the Obama administration. At the time, he was the Under Secretary of State, and um, so he he, you know, he goes a little bit further into his view of the liberal international order and this rules based order that he supports and that he he serves essentially. So let's uh, we'll play a little bit from from his speech to CFR. Part of our challenge is it's hard to help some of our fellow citizens imagine what the world would look like without the advantages for all of the deficits of this multilateral rules and norms-based system. It would mean, though, building ad hoc arrangements every single time we wanted to act, an extraordinary diplomatic lift that would distract us from the real challenges at hand. It would be a world where goods are fewer and more expensive. Businesses move slower. The appetite for risk is lower. Where travel is harder, educational exchange is tougher. International research collaboration near impossible. 
It would mean anarchy on the high seas with pirates, drug traffickers, smugglers, sanctioned violators sailing freely and a global power vacuum filled by those whose values don't look anything like ours to abandon that system, the liberal international order that we have spent so much blood and treasure to build over these last seven decades. Now's the time to strengthen it, to adapt it to new realities. So what he's describing is democracy. Like the, what he is describing as the alternative to the liberal international order is democracy, where the people would come together and decide through elected representatives uh, you know, how to run business, how to conduct foreign policy, how the United States should interact with the, with the rest of the world, bilateral relations, something that the Trump administration strongly supported, which is one of the main contentions that the liberal foreign policy establishment had with the Trump administration is the fact that Trump w- did not believe in multilateral agreements. He wanted to deal one-on-one with foreign powers sit yes. down with have our representatives sit down with Japan's representatives and hash out a trade treaty sit down with Mexico's representatives hash out a trade treaty yes uh, the only compromise he really made was by uh, reforming NAFTA but th- what blinken is essentially describing is democracy and he's saying that you know if we had democracy then things would move slower you would have pirates on the seas you would have everything would grind to a halt you would have total chaos which is why we don't need democracy basically we need a bunch of technocratic elites to decide these things Things for the people, so things can move uh, can move smoothly. Now, one of the things that one of the uh, there was a professor here who was uh, who was the the speaker at the at the CR, CFR convention. He engaged in Blinken in conversation, and he said he told him that part of the problem, the reason why you're seeing a lot of pushback, because remember this is early 2016 when Trump is on the rise, the Trump movement is gaining steam, and he tells Blinken that perhaps the reason why we're seeing so much pushback and revolt is because the American people were never consulted on any of this and never agreed to any of this. Let's take a listen. Well, let's, let's kind of pull back a little historically, because I, I noticed you talked about after World War I and after World War II, we had these debates. It, to me, it's always interesting that after World War II, actually the United States first decided we're going to wash our hands mm-hmm. of everything. Mm-hmm. We demobilized, mm-hmm. we were coming home, and it was really only um, when Stalin sort of mm-hmm. Uh, began to move forward in Eastern Europe that that Truman was able to kind of painfully rally the country there. Interestingly, after 1990, we didn't have that debate. Mm. Um, you know, we didn't. Cold War was over. What are we going to do? We're going to build a new world order. Mm. We're going to extend the West to the East. Um, I'm not sure that the American people bought into that. I buy into that, by the way, but I'm not sure that maybe the lack of that public debate. Mm. I think the way way that people like us at at CFR and and so on in both parties uh, handle that was to say, look, don't worry, people. It's going to be cheap and it's going to be easy. Now that the Soviet Union is gone... It's not going to cost a lot of money. There's not going to be a lot of risk of war. America's going to be able to put a lot less into the international system, mm-hmm. but, but take a lot more out in mm-hmm. terms of human rights and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure a lot of people ever really believed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now what they're doing, you know, one, one gets to feel people are looking at this world that is so very unlike the world that George H.W. Bush or... Bill Clinton suggested we were headed into, where's that end of history thing gone? 
And, when, and so there's a tremendous mm-hmm. skepticism now, and we're sort of having the debate now mm-hmm. that we would have had in 1990. Mm-hmm. Is that tally yeah, with what I, you I, see? I agree with that, and I think... Uh, first off, I, I gotta interject. I mean, the audacity that these people have at this point to openly say, to openly use the phrase "new world order," knowing full well. well that the, keep keep in mind, they're not doing it openly. They're just doing it among themselves. They don't they don't figure among, that anybody like, would ever hear right, any of this conversation, yeah, even though they're posting yeah. it online. Right, but then also he goes on to say, like, you know, oh, the American people didn't sign up for that. So that's why it's up to us, you know, like here at CFR and people in both parties, you know, suggesting this consensus. Yeah, no, he says the both parties. It, it, he, like he recognizes that both parties are in on this. Yep, and it's their job. It's essentially, oh, it's our job to convince those rubes, those those uneducated American voters who just want to put America first. It's our job to convince them. And I love the reasoning, too, he uses. The way we can convince Americans to do this. Oh, it's cheaper, guys. You know, we may be, you know, instituting like a, an ideological empire, but it'll be cheap. We'll be fiscally responsible the whole time. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. These people are deranged with the levels of power that they seek to achieve and unfortunately have achieved at this point. Now, Blinken, even though he said at the end, oh, I agree with you. Of course, that's what they, that's, you know, diplomatic speak. It doesn't matter what the person says. The person could say, you know, we're going to genocide half of our population because they're kind of uh, a problem. Thanos, oh, I agree snap. With you. Yeah. They are, they are a problem. Uh, but let's look at other alternatives, you know, that type of thing. Like, this is complete diplomatic speak. He says, even though he says, yeah, I agree with you, he basically changes the subject. And we'll play, it's kind of a little bit of a long clip. We'll go ahead and play it as he kind of rambles about the Middle East, changes the subject. But he essentially at the end says that the Truman Doctrine decided what America's foreign policy was going to be and what America's uh, raison d'etre, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the reason is America's reason of existence was going to be after World War II and that, that Truman Doctrine carried even after the Cold War. Like you didn't need to renew that with the American people because Truman already decided it. Like that's basically his answer to that. But we'll go ahead and take a listen. Part of what we're seeing is the basic organizing principle. The nation state is under challenge in ways that it's never been before. From below, from above, from the side. Uh, We have all sorts of non-state actors, whether it is the CEO of a major corporation, the mayor of a megacity, an NGO, a super-empowered individual, for good or for bad, in different ways challenging uh, the state. We have countries, particularly, for example, in the Middle East, that have been unable to effectively deliver uh, for their citizens who are under challenge, old orders fading away, vacuums that tend to be filled by uh, more extreme forces, not more moderate ones. And all of this is coming to a head, and again, it's driven in many ways more quickly uh, by technology, by information, And again, that feeds into the sense of chaos, the sense of confusion, and it feeds into questioning whether the basic premises, the basic organization that Mm -hmm. we agreed on, you're exactly right, when Truman really came into the game, um, and then that we renewed after the Cold War, is, is the right thing. And it, it, you know, basically what he's given is the typical liberal response to why people would be discontent with this utopian system that they set up after World War II. You know, he blames, you know, well, it's, you know, when governments don't really respond to the needs of their citizens, as in, you know, we need more welfare. We need to throw more welfare at the rubes or technology. You know, the rubes just don't understand technology. Technology has really exacerbated the uh, the issues with 
globalization because it's allowed the rich to get richer, the poor to get poorer. And you have the dumb rubes who just simply can't learn how to code. I mean, that's kind of the, that's the implication that a lot of liberals take. And that's, that's there when you ask them, why is it that the average people are growing discontented with this liberal international world order? Those are the reasons they'll give you. It's not, they'll never criticize. They'll never critique their own system. They'll never look at their own system and stop and think, hey, maybe the system goes against human nature. Maybe people actually, maybe your average person actually isn't built physically or mentally to support something like this. Maybe it's our fault that people are angry. No, no, it's always, well, they're just too dumb to understand technology or uh, we need to do a better job of throwing money at them and making, you know, creating a bigger welfare state. Well, and also, I got to point out something else, too, he mentioned there, as he talked about, you know, uh, look at countries uh, like the Middle East, where they they aren't really doing much for their people, and, like, the old ways are kind of dying, like, basically kind of not so subtly suggesting the, the, what they always talked about was, is we need to just help liberalize Afghanistan, right? We just need to introduce Western values to these nations, to Iran, because, gee... uh, 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 Global values, global global aspirations. Global values. That's international aspirations. That's right. Of course, because this was done, obviously, this speech took place before uh, the fall of Afghanistan, which we saw how that went. You know, we spent 20 years, 21 years, trying to liberalize Afghanistan, and the end result is that as soon as, even before we left, as we were on our way out the door, the Taliban came steamrolling back in, they took over the country... And they did so with apparently a lot of support by the people of Afghanistan who are ready to go mm-hmm. back to an Islamic theocracy. They don't want an occupied, you know, mini America, a Middle Eastern remake, a Bollywood adaptation of America, right? They just wanted to go back to the way things were before the Americans came in, just like they want to go back to the way things were before the Soviets came in and the way they, things were before the British tried to come in. Like, it's always happened. You can never liberalize these countries, one of the oldest regions in the world with those traditions that have last and those beliefs, especially the Islamic beliefs that have lasted as long as they have for a reason. And uh, well, moving on, I, I, to... I, I, actually, actually real quick before we move on, I just, I pulled this clip up. This is a perfect thing. Cause we always try to talk about like solutions or what the response to that. I want to play a clip from Trump's uh, Warsaw speech. Cause I think that's like a perfect okay. counter. Yeah. This. So, and of course, where can we even begin to talk about a solution to this? I can't believe I have not yet found an excuse to play any a clip from any of this on the show i consider this jacob to be the single greatest speech president trump ever it was early in his presidency it was 2017 it was his warsaw speech he was speaking at the war memorial uh in warsaw poland uh commemorating the the resistance fighters who fought against the nazis and it was all about western identity and the importance of preserving the west we have to remember that our defense is not just a commitment of money It is a commitment of will, because as the Polish experience reminds us, the defense of the West ultimately rests not only on means, but also on the will of its people to prevail and be successful and get what you have to have. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? That is, I mean, there it is. That's all you need to know. That is the best possible response to this, that we should be at absolute best a maybe a more cooperative group of individual nations that all put our own interests first. The EU leaves 
of Hungary alone, for example, and lets Hungary do their thing with their immigration laws and cracking down on degenerate education slash indoctrination, and they leave Hungary alone. An EU that respects Brexit and doesn't try to overturn Brexit like they tried and thankfully failed to do. And yes, a United States of America that defends its borders and looks out for itself and prioritizes trade that ultimately benefits American manufacturing and American workers above all else, rather than free trade, because, you know, that's the that's the laissez-faire approach. That is the future. That is what an ideal world looks like. Well, moving on to an issue that does affect people who are far away from the centers of power and far away from the cesspools of liberal internationalists. So as everyone knows, on February 3rd, there was a train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, and it was carrying extremely toxic, hazardous material. There were 50 cars who derailed. Ten of those cars were carrying chemicals. Five of them were carrying vinyl chloride, which when burned creates phosphine, which was used in World War I as poison gas. But to make matters worse, they actually did a controlled burn a day, uh, I believe it was February 5th, they did a controlled burn because a lot of it had leaked out. They uh, isolated it into a ditch and burned it. Um, the The flames could be seen 10 miles away. If you watch the videos, it's, it looks like a, an atomic bomb went off like because yeah. it created a literal mushroom cloud. And there were there really wasn't a lot of coverage of this. Of course, a lot of this was occurring leading up to the Super Bowl and around the Super Bowl. So most of the country was either focused on that or they were focused on spy so-called spy balloons or yeah. the U.S. Air Force conducting target practice over Lake Michigan. <laughs> so th- there really wasn't a lot of national coverage on this. Now, I found out days later that this even happened. And print media and digital media did do a fairly decent job of talking about it. But from my understanding, I don't really watch broadcast media that much but from my understanding there was very little coverage of this in the national broadcast press it was basically just balloon super bowl and um, ufos that was the, those were the top stories across the board because th- you know that's what people are interested in that's right and, yeah um, the three, not many people know about this town right the three major of uh, tv networks abc cbs and nbc all combined together these three channels spent approximately 30 seconds covering the train derailment and this was almost two weeks after the fact 30 seconds across three channels that's 10 seconds per channel yeah and look most people don't really read their news online despite what people claim that oh you know in the age of digital media that's where everyone gets their news most people if they do get their news online it's from facebook and most people facebook has actually lost a lot of traffic over the past few years so if broadcast media black something out, then it's going to cut down on a lot of the people, you know, a, a huge portion of the country that would even know that it happened. If you're not, every, you know, every day checking news sites, which most people don't do unless they're maybe if they're working an online job or working a remote job, they have extra time to check the, um, you know, update cbs.com or abcnews.com. Then um, ordinarily, ordinary people typically don't get this stuff. But you know, a lot of people have referred to this actually as in a, the closest thing that America has ever experienced of a Chernobyl, Chernobyl because yep. it's, a, it's a very small town. And, you know, it, it a lot of people, they actually had to have a quarantine for had to evacuate everyone within a one mile radius of the train of where the derailment happened. A lot of people were claiming that they should have done like five miles or 10 miles because it's at this point, it's not really known how much damage this did to the environment, how much damage this is going to do to people's long term health. And when you consider something like this, when you look back at the early 2000s, when the environmental movement was at its peak, 
when that not race was on the minds of every leftist, you would have had hundreds of thousands of people descending on this town yep. protesting against Norfolk Southern, which is the company that owns the train. I remember that there was a little town in Romania that wanted to frack and they attracted tens of thousands of people from around the world in 2006 that descended on this one little bitty mountain village just because they wanted to open fracking. They attracted tens of thousands of activists, Americans, British from around the world who flocked to that village to protest because it was going to damage the environment. And there's crickets nowadays. You know, Greta Thunberg isn't there. Um, Al Gore. uh, People, all these yeah, Al Gore isn't there. All these climate freaks in Europe that are stopping trains on, you know, that are blocking highways and freeways in Europe. They're not showing up. Nobody's saying a peep about this. And this is one of the largest environmental disasters in American history. And uh, you take a look at it. It's not just speculation. I mean, there have actually been cases where people are noticing their animals are dying. Uh, we'll play this clip from this one woman who uh, her camera caught her hens just fine before they did the controlled burn. Right after they did the controlled burn she came out and noticed all of her hens were dead. So I walked up to the cage and this this is what I found. Amanda Brashears was going to feed her five hens and rooster this morning when she discovered them all lifeless, practically in the same position with no signs of a predator entering their enclosure. I'm beyond upset and quite panicked because this, they may be just chickens, but they're family. Brashears says her chickens were alive and well yesterday. She believes the smell following the detonation of the train carrying chemicals that derailed in East Palestine is to blame for her bird's sudden death. My video camera footage shows my chickens were perfectly fine before they started this burn. And as soon as they started the burn, my chickens slowed down and they died. If you can do this to chickens in one night, imagine what's going to do to us in 20 years. Officials have said that the smell wasn't toxic or dangerous, but still advised people in the Mahoning Valley to stay indoors Monday night as a precaution. For them to say the air quality is okay, I'm calling BS. I'm going to be taking my birds to the vet to have them examined. Because if if this is the cause of their burn, they're being held responsible. And it was others as well. Uh, there's another clip here from people who noticed animals dead. The Sunday after the derailment, um, I went to put them away for the night, and I had a dead rooster in my yard. Um, initially, I thought maybe just something random happened to it. I wasn't sure. I didn't put two and two together because we were told it was safe. And then um, I had another one that I found a few minutes later who was isolating himself. He did not go in for the night. I had to carry him to the coop. I had another one who was starting to like walk funny. Um, you can see that his legs are just not working right. This is infuriating, and it's sad. It was two days after the detonation. He completely couldn't walk anymore. He was completely coherent. If I put him by food and water, he would eat and drink perfectly fine, but he couldn't use his legs anymore. And I also, the same night, had a hen who was I put in the coop. She went up on the roost and then started seizing and fell off the roost. And it happened multiple times after that. She has since seemed to not be having those, so I don't know if it was the initial exposure that just messed with her system and now she's okay. I don't know what the long-term effects are. They were perfectly healthy before all this happened, and within 24 hours, they all dropped. That's just not normal. And it was all slightly different symptoms. I also had two rabbits die. They were within 24 hours. It was literally overnight. They just dropped. This is the fish. Okay, so I went down to the creek right by my house. And mind you, we're almost two weeks later. And this is what we still have. There are literally hundreds of dead fish. The stream that is contaminated, Leslie Run, runs right into my property. Like, it dumps into the creek by my property. The EPA was saying, like, the fish are repopulating already. And I'm like, there was not one living thing in that creek. Not one. My heart goes out to the people that are even closer. I mean, I know what I'm dealing with. I'm not drinking my water. I don't trust it at all. This is our home. I grew up here. I was born here. Like, I know every road around here. I know just about everybody here. We can't just uproot and go. Like, it's a disaster. Now, the Ohio EPA detected no contaminants in the five wells that feed into uh, East Palestine's municipal water system. And uh, they're claiming that the water, the drinking water is fine, that they don't have to worry about that. 
but it's the public waters that people are mostly concerned about. And according to NBC's WLWT, the, the rivers and the creeks, they are positively contaminated from this controlled burn. Uh, because again, remember they're, they're burning all of this. So obviously when they burn this vinyl chloride, it releases these toxins into the air and it's going to release it into the river. Senator J.D. Vance uh, actually went to East Palestine and stood in a creek. We'll play a clip from his. Hey guys, so I'm here at Leslie Run, and there are dead worms and dead fish all throughout this water. So, something I just discovered is that if you scrape the creek bed, it's like chemical is coming out of the ground. Can, can, you, show, can you come here? And, and, and let me just show this to people. I don't know if you're going to be able to see this on the camera, but watch this. Just see that chemical pop out of the creek. This is disgusting. And the fact that we have not cleaned up the, the, the train crash, the fact that these chemicals are still seeping in the ground is an insult to the people who live in East Palestine. Do not forget these people. We've got to keep applying pressure. That's how we're going to fix this problem. Thank you. So obviously, the, as this is an audio podcast, what happens in the video is he's holding a big stick and he sticks the stick into the water and scrapes it along the bottom of the creek. It's a very shallow creek, like maybe an inch or two deep. And when he does that, he, the water initially, initially appears fine. He scrapes it across the bottom and this, the chemicals that were at the bottom of the creek float up to the surface and it becomes this kind of like this glossy, this multicolored glowing surface that very much looks like I remember when I went to Pearl Harbor uh, with my grandfather many, many years ago and we got to go on the Arizona Memorial and, you know, the platform that's over the wreckage of the ship, which is just below the surface. And to this day, 70, almost 80 years, over 80 years later now, 80 years later. There is still oil gradually seeping up from the ship into the water, and it has that same kind of glossy appearance on the surface. It literally looks like an oil spill in this creek. And you can imagine, of course, plenty of other creeks and rivers in the area are affected like that. And the real reason, as you said, Jacob, why this could be one of the greatest environmental disasters in American history is because of the location's proximity to the Ohio River and all the subsequent basins and other uh, tributaries that flow out from it and stretches across much of the Midwest and much of you know, the Appalachian area that is there. So that is the, the um, imagine, if you will, just that crap in the Ohio River spreading across all those states. The, the crash itself was in an area of Ohio that's literally right on the border with Pennsylvania. It's not like this was in the middle of the state. This was already you know, bordering another state already and affecting air quality probably in Pennsylvania as well. So just imagine this spreading through the rivers to so many other states in the Midwest, Kentucky, all those other states. Yeah, because it's not just a matter of the drinking water that humans get. I mean, humans can go, people can go to the store and buy bottles of water. The animals cannot. So you're going to have, you're talking about thousands and thousands of farms who are reliant on this water to drink. Uh, Sil Caggiano, he's a former fire department battalion chief in Youngstown, Ohio, and a hazmat technician for 21 years. He told the local WKBN news channel, he said, quote, we basically nuked a town with chemicals so we could get a railroad open. And one of the top criticisms of locals was that as soon as they were told, uh, basically as soon as the the controlled burn ended and they got everything clear, they were immediately running trains back through there. So like Norfolk Southern was like, let's, you know, let's clear the area. We'll get the thing burned off. And then we got to immediately get this get this going so you know burn the crime not necessarily crime scene but burn the accident scene and so we can keep making money so that's one of the issues norfolk southern interestingly enough so in order to atone for this accident which by the way just as a little side note workers of norfolk southern told cbs news last week that they had detected that the the train had actually been having problems 
whenever it left Illinois, because the train was coming from Illinois. It, it had had problems earlier on the track and they didn't stop the train. They just kept going. And not only that, but the train was like 150, it was 151 cars long. So th- that itself is a ridiculous length for yeah. any train to, to be going. So it's, you know, in 50, and it's no wonder that they had 50 cars that ended up derailing. But um, yeah, f- and, and what's interesting is, you know, what, not only did national media outlets not cover this much on broadcast, but they, the, the attitude among a lot of people is that, well, this is going to cause these locals to distrust institutions even more. Philip Bump wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Of course. And w- in which he basically suggests exactly that. And the title of his op-ed is The Other Risk from the East Palestine Disaster. And of course, you can guess what other risk he's talking about. He writes, quote, the past few decades have been rough ones for American institutions from the presidency on down. But the past few years have been particularly rough for the institutions that had otherwise held up fairly well, scientists and medical experts particularly. And, of course, he talks about the COVID-19 pandemic. How people were starting to distrust the CDC. They were starting to distrust the FDA. Anthony and Fauci. It, Gee, I wonder he was why. Basically like, yeah, he's basically arguing that, yeah, this is terrible. In fact, he spends like five of the first paragraphs of this article talking about how none of this is good. All the, it goes through everything that happened to control burn. None of this is good. Basically trying to cover his own rear saying, you know, I'm not now I'm not saying that any of this isn't a tragedy. It is. But we need to be mindful that this is also going to make things more difficult for our team to renew trust in American institutions. And the problem with the America's legacy media, like the Washington Post, is they're not necessarily news media. They are cheerleaders for the institutions. Yes. They basically exist as PR firms for America's institutions. And when something like this happens, it's like, oh, brother, here we go again. Now all these Ohioan rubes are going to start distrusting medical experts. Now they're going to start distrusting the EPA as if we didn't have enough distrust among these rural people of the FDA already or the FDA, the EPA and all these other, you know, three letter agencies already. So it's just the attitude. And then and then you got Buttigieg, who was supposed to be the transportation <laughs> secretary. You know, you would think that of all people, he would be out there. He would have visited East Palestine like two days after it happened. Once it was as soon as it was safe for him to go there, Buttigieg would be there. Not only but, is he the transportation secretary, but he's a former politician. He was a mayor in Indiana, Indiana one yep. state over. And the guy who literally, so you would think that he would he, he be he was appointed transportation. He when later after he was confirmed, he was asked, yo, what are your qualifications for transportation secretary? He literally said Oh, I really like trains. You know, I've liked trains ever since I was a kid. So he really should care about this. It's a train derailment. He should care. Yeah. He, yeah, he should have been out there, you know, talking to, if nothing else, at least talking to people and reassuring them that the government is going to do everything possible to make sure that they're safe and healthy and, you know, everything is cleaned up. But no, here's what he had to say regarding this issue. Rail safety is something that, uh, that has evolved a lot over the years, but there's clearly more that needs to be done because uh, while this uh, horrible situation ha- has gotten a particularly high amount of attention, there are roughly 1,000 cases a year of a train derailing. So basically his excuse is, oh, this happens all the time, don't you know? There's always trains derailing and unleashing basically a chemical Chernobyl on American towns. <laughs> that happens all the time, folks. It wasn't but a few days later and another chemically full train derailed in near Detroit. Like it was carrying toxic chemicals and it derailed. There were like three or four cars that fell off the tracks. Thankfully, it didn't start a fire. They didn't have to do a controlled burn. But, you know, in a sense, he's not wrong. But at the same time, this isn't the way that you operate a government if you're trying to 
you know, if you are part of the citizens, and this is one of the things, this is kind of a theme with the Democratic Party, is they don't necessarily see themselves as part of the everyday man and everyday woman in America. They see themselves basically as teachers trying to get their students to want to learn. Yes. Like that's that's the role they see themselves like his they talk see down his to job us. as serving. Yeah. Yes, he doesn't see his job as serving the public. He sees it as his job to reassure the public that this isn't a big deal and they don't need to freak out about it because you know, if if you can convince people that train derailments are a normal thing, then they're not going to expect you to not make it not be a normal thing. Does does that make sense? Like, you know, if you're the transportation secretary, shouldn't it be your job to make it so that it's not a normal thing? But if you can convince people that it is a normal thing, then they won't expect much of you. And they'll just kind of throw up their hands. Okay, it's another toxic spill, whatever. You know, we've got chemicals in the water. This is just life in America. But it's, yeah, it's just disgusting because these people, they do not see. It's like they, because they literally do not see themselves as part of the same class as these people. So they have to treat them as if. These people are their underlings, you know, convince them that to believe in the institutions. So uh, just to wrap it up, the so Norfolk Southern, they're offering people a thousand dollars. They're going around offering uh, residents a thousand dollars. Oh, and by the way, they decided to donate twenty five thousand to uh, the Red Cross. So the Red Cross can then spend its money on temporary animal shelters to help all seized and injured animals and displaced animals in the area. $25,000 is what they're donating. And they're not even donating directly to an animal shelter. They're donating that money to the Red Cross in the hopes that the Red Cross will then throw some change, you know, toward the animal shelter. For an animal shelter. Not for people, for animals. Well, so far, thankfully, we haven't had any reports of serious Injury, but this is the thing with with uh, these chemicals. So uh, the the main chemical that was released it's highly cancerous. Like there's like four or five different cancers that it causes, and so you know we won't really know the effects of this on people for probably another twenty years. But a Cleveland attorney is warning East Palestine residents about a one thousand dollar check. Um, being offered to people as an inconvenience fee from Norfolk Southern. On Friday, February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train derailed just outside of, well, we'll skip that. We already know that. So Michael J. O'Shea from the Lipson O'Shea Legal Group has represented residents in a lawsuit against the railroad and is worried about the reason behind the checks. He said, quote, we have some clients from the East Palestine area affected by the train accident who are being approached by NS, that's Norfolk Southern, with $1,000 checks for an inconvenience fee. We think this is a way of getting these poor folks to waive any future claims against NS. And he is recommending that anyone who accepted the money sign a waiver immediately that stipulates that this does not uh, remove them from being able to you know, sue in the future, to sue for damages. So it's almost like the, like Norfolk Southern. He, he's suspicious that Norfolk Southern is trying to bribe these people. Yeah. But I mean, you think money, about basically. it in the grand scheme of things, $1,000 is not much money. No, when you consider the potential not. ramifications of this, exactly. and especially when you consider as small as this town is, like it's not like it derailed in Pittsburgh and you've got potentially hundreds of thousands of people that you've got to buy off. Now this is a very small town with a very small number of people that you're potentially going to need to pay damages to, and they're like, "Here, we'll just uh, we'll throw you a thousand dollars." Now shut up about it. Well, you train derailments happen all the time. It's so bad, and at the end of it too, as has been said. A major reason, the big socio-political so what of this, 
is why do they care that, you know, or why do they not care? Why do they, the establishment, the regime, the institutions, the media, why do they not care about this? Compare this to say, this just came to me, Jacob, but compare this, if you will, to Flint. Remember a little something called Flint, Michigan? Remember the the, the crisis there that the water, I don't remember the details even. I just knew apparently the water wasn't clean. It was, I guess, as Alex Jones would say, it was turning the frogs gay or something like that. But there was just, (laughs) it was a national outrage. How could they let the water get so bad in a place like Flint? Well, gee, then you look at something like this in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, I, I think we might notice a bit of a, shall we say, demographic difference there, Jacob, in terms of who the the which type of people live in Flint versus which type of people live in East Palestine. Hmm, kind of gets the uh, the old uh, noggin joggin, doesn't it? So, now, of kind of does, kind of does. Of course, Flint, Michigan. You know, it was predominantly an African-American community. That's why you had like so-called civil rights leaders claim this was proof of systemic racism and institutions deliberately making black people sick, stuff like that. And then here, of course, you have, as we saw in these videos, the all the, the residents they spoke to in these videos at the town hall meetings, the ones going on Fox News for interviews, they are all white people. This, of course, it's Ohio. It's the Midwest. It is the white working class. The Ohio River and the, the states that are going to be affected by the chemicals in that river spreading to all these other states, it's predominantly affecting white states, m- majority white states. So, of course, it, and what is what is the white working class, Jacob? The backbone of the Trump movement. These are the people who put Donald Trump in office and gave these people now perpetual endless night terrors over the orange man right so of course they see this as i'm sure they'll never say this i mean some people were probably sick enough that they'll say this but they generally won't say this they see this almost as some kind of retribution like oh this is payback you know the, the, these dumb rubes these working class you know redneck hicks kind of deserve this you know this is what you get for voting for trump right you know if they were well, to if you look, read the comments on the internet like the typical refrain is well these people voted for deregulation so they're getting exactly what they they deserve because and it's it's true. This is this is kind of an argument against that we have with the Republican Party is the fact that the Republican Party is in the pockets of big business like Norfolk Southern. They give equally to the Democratic and Republican parties. And of course, Norfolk Southern lobbies for deregulation of the rails, which contributes to accidents like this. So they're not necessarily wrong in that a lot of these Republican politicians have contributed to the problem by deregulating. But a lot of these people, they vote for Republicans just because the Democratic Party has a near genocidal view of them. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, we'll take a little deregulation that could potentially put us in danger versus a party that literally wants to erase us from the country that our ancestors built. So it's it's a matter of trade-offs. And just real quick, um, just looking at what vinyl chloride is and does to people, um, this is from cancer.gov. Workers at facilities where vinyl chloride is produced or used may be exposed primarily through inhalation. The general population may be exposed by inhaling contaminated air or tobacco smoke. In the environment, the highest levels of vinyl chloride are found in air around factories that produce vinyl products. If a water supply is contaminated, vinyl chloride can enter household air when the water is used for showering, cooking, or laundry. Now, as far as the cancers that this could potentially produce, vinyl chloride exposure is associated with an increased uh, risk of a rare form of liver cancer, hepatic angiosarcoma, as well as primary liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, brain and lung cancers, lymphoma, and leukemia. So, you know, this isn't anything to really sneeze at or, you know, downplay. This is something that people should definitely take seriously. And it's something that they should have to had a little bit more public debate on before deciding to have a public burn of um, vinyl chloride. 
Like the idea was, well, let's hurry up and get rid of it before it spreads. But whenever you burn it off like that, it's, you know, you're potentially contaminating the air and you're obviously contaminating the water. So it's, it's just an all around mess. It's an all around uh, disaster. And again, you know, we don't really know what kind of effect this is going to have on the people in the area for probably another 20 years. Sounds kind of like the COVID vaccine, doesn't it? You know, this is something they insisted would kinda, be fine. Yeah, kind of similar. Very just, similar. Just take it and worry about the effects 20, 30 years down the road when you can't sue any of these companies for the vaccine after effects, by the way. Good. And, of course, all the government officials in both cases are coming in and telling everyone everything is all right. It's okay. Nothing to worry about. Everything's all right. Just trust the government, folks. Trust the government. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much, as always, for tuning in. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content on our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting what we do here on the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.